0: Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who reveals himself. You didn't just make, but you made people and you you were in relationship with the first people, Adam and Eve. And Lord, even when we got it all wrong, even when we dishonoured the one who'd given us life and breath and everything, you made a way, the only way by which we could have that broken relationship restored again, that our penalty of death was taken upon Jesus, so that by trusting in him, that we could have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with you again. But Lord, more than just being forgiven, Lord, you have a reason why we're here in this world today. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word that we might know you more clearly. Lord, we pray that we might be a people who are in awe of who you are as we any page of the Bible that we flick to, that we might see you and stand in wonder and awe. Lord, we pray that your word might achieve its purpose to instruct us, to challenge us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for the work of your spirit in me as I speak and in all of us. That we would hear your words, that we'd be comforted and moved by your words. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll apologize in advance for any coughing that may happen throughout it. It's not been a healthy week in our household. Um, but we'll just pretend that doesn't happen if it does. Now, a lot of you will know that I'm quite passionate when it comes to talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, for some people that might think seem like a little bit of a strange thing you think, oh well, they're just another church and they've just got some ideas that are different than ours. But one of the differences which they have is a significant one. They have very different views when it comes to who is Jesus? And that's a pretty important question. Who is Jesus? Because from their perspective, Jesus is not God. He is a created being, something that God created From their perspective, he is Michael the archangel. And that the resurrection that we speak about in the Bible, I don't believe was a physical resurrection. It's a very different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. But there are two things in particular I find most disturbing. One is the amount of publications that they produce, which look like they're really well researched and convincing, that are emphasised upon drawing people away from the biblical testimony about who Jesus is. And the second disturbing thing which is related to that, if you are a Jehovah's Witness, you're not permitted to read any other Christian material other than the stuff the Watchtower produces. So there's material which is deceptive, but they're not allowed to look elsewhere. As a matter of fact, they're told that to question the governing body and their teaching is basically, in effect to commit the very same sin that Satan did. Now, one of the joys of the internet is it makes things available. And there are a lot of people who have come because they can research other things without having forbidden books on their bookshelf. And people have come to see the truth of who Jesus is. Now, the reason why I use that as an opening illustration is that the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus and in the time of the early church had an understanding of the scriptures that was very different than what Jesus interpreted the Old Testament scriptures to to mean and to be understood. Like Jesus, as he comes on the scene, describes himself as being the fulfillment, the end goal of the Old Testament law. That he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That he was God in the flesh coming to this world to deal with the problem of our sin. And in the end, it was Jesus' claims about himself That resulted in the hostility, the opposition of the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead and eventually got him crucified. The book of Acts, which talks about the beginnings of the early church, started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his appearance to his followers. We see in in 1 Corinthians 15, on one occasion there was more than 500 who saw him. Jesus raised And as he gathers his followers around him, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he gives them their mission in this world. You will receive power and my spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen that the spirit did indeed come, did indeed come with power and they did indeed bear witness. Now, in terms of history, we've travelled not much time as we've got to chapter 6, where we're up to the moment. But even though they've stopped getting to the point of giving numbers, we're well and truly beyond what began as 120 followers to now beyond 10,000. Throughout the preaching ministry of Peter and the other apostles, where they explained who Jesus was and how he was the necessary fulfilment of what the Old Testament spoke about, there's been two different responses. It's some who have seen, yes, Jesus is the hope. He is the the very thing that everything that we've been looking at so far has been leading to. He's the natural progression of Judaism. This is where it was all pointing towards. But the second response is to see Jesus' teaching as being abhorrent. Something that needs to be destroyed. It is the Jewish leaders who fit into that second description. And they're strongly opposed to it. In the early ministry of the apostles we see them because they see the effect that's coming. People are going following after this new teaching, coming under the leadership of the apostles rather than the leadership of the Jewish leaders and so they actually speak to the apostles and say, you cannot mention this name ever again. And what we've seen is this is so important to them. This is so ingrained in their identity as a child of God, I cannot. They they rebuke the leaders and say, what are we going to do? Do we obey men or do we obey God? You can't tell me not to speak about this. This is who I am. It naturally flows out of who I am. So they're forbidden to speak multiple times. They were put in jail and God brings them out of jail. They were flogged and punished, but they cannot help but speak and the church continues to grow. But in their last trial before the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up. And he said so in this present case I tell you keep away from these men and leave them alone for if this plan is the undertaking of man it will fail but if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. He says if this is God there's nothing you can do that's going to stop it. The God who we had read in the opening psalm the God who achieves everything he sets out to do. The church continued to grow despite the opposition, despite the authority saying, you can't speak, we put you in jail, bad things may happen if you proclaim this name. They cannot help but speak about this Jesus. The means by which it flourished, as we saw, are through prayer and by the proclamation of the word of God. And last week, as Samuel looked at the first part of chapter 6, we saw that the apostles were beginning to become burdened with menial tasks. And they said, our role, the, the forwarding of the kingdom comes through prayer and the, and the proclamation of the gospel. So they set aside seven men full of the spirit to serve on tables to help with the poor. So that they could focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. And we saw as last week finish the final verse. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I like that last bit. And a great many of the priests became obedient to into the faith. Not only do we see a constant growing of the church through the power of the gospel going out, but even the priests, even the teachers of Judaism are coming to faith. I wonder if Gamaliel is starting to think about his words. If it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop this. Today's reading is a pivotal moment in terms of the mission and the book of Acts. Remember how it said it goes Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Now we see a pivot through the events which happen here where the gospel begins to go from outside of Jerusalem but also in a pivotal sense in terms of its instruments. Up until this point in time, the predominantly the gospel proclamation has been the work of the apostles. And now we see a great speech coming from Stephen. Stephen we saw last week, who was one of these seven men full of the Spirit who were set aside for this task of waiting on tables. This is actually one of the longest speeches in the entirety of the book of Acts. And you think, I thought we were setting him aside to do this particular task so that the apostles could do proclamation of the word and prayer. Why is it Stephen's here on the scene now? He's bringing a word and he's preaching. I think it's a powerful reminder here is that, sure, we've all got different roles in terms of the body of believers, but despite whatever role we might have within our body of believers, all of us have a calling to be ambassadors from Christ, to bear witness to him. And today we see Stephen full of the Spirit and his Christ-likeness in these three different ways. A Christ like man with a Christ like opposition in 6 8 to 7 1. Uh, the largest section, which is Stephen's speech, a Christ like defence of God's plan. And lastly, a Christ like death. So, looking first, a Christ like man with Christ like opposition. Up until this point in time, we've seen signs and wonders being done, gathering attention of people, but particularly of the religious leaders. Remember when they healed the man who had been born lame for 40 years and Peter and John brought him to fullness of healing? The religious leaders got around him and they wanted to ask some significant questions. That was actually the basis by which they said, you can no longer speak in this name of Jesus. We have mentioned as we've gone along that predominantly the signs and wonders we read about in Acts are done by the Apostles. Yet there are two exceptions in Acts and one is Stephen which we've just seen here who's doing many signs and wonders and also uh, Philip the Evangelist. But just like the apostles beforehand Stephen's signs and wonders get attention and the opposition of the leaders. As did Jesus. But think about this Stephen as a man. Throughout chapter 6 we see him described as being one who's full of the Spirit one who is in good repute with men, one who's full of wisdom and full of grace. And you think, how do you bring charges against a person who can be described in those sorts of terms? Verse 11 answers that question, which says you basically, you secretly persuade others to make claims against him. They don't want to be the ones who always seem to be doing the harpers of the bad news. So they say, guys... I want you to make claims against this Stephen because we don't like what he's doing. I remember back in a day when I used to work for an internet service provider and I was part of management there. And whenever we had management meetings, I had this deal with another guy who was on the board that whenever I raised a point, he, I didn't even discuss it with beforehand, he would say, I'm with you, brother. It's just, kind of, just a way of like a pre-arranged organisation that he would get someone else to advocate for my cause. And this is what the, the religious leaders are doing. They're getting others to put forward their cause. And those who have are in um, management meetings, feel free to, to apply my principle for fun if you want to. It spices the meetings up a little bit. And not only that, verse 13, the council, as they bring before the council, they set up false witnesses. Now this is where it gets a little bit weird, doesn't it? They're bringing claims against Stephen saying he is speaking against Moses and his law yet they set up false witnesses that Moses law says do not bear false witness not only does the old testament law say do not bear false witness it says if you do bear false witness about someone and it's found to be false you bear the consequences or the punishment for the thing that you're accusing against someone So what are the claims that get made against Stephen? We read these in verses 13 and 14. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now we don't know if Stephen actually said anything along the lines to that effect. Certainly Jesus said things that were interpreted in that sense. But whether or not he had said something... When Stephen gives forth his defence, he pretty much gives them what they want to hear him say. But interestingly, if they accuse him as being one who speaks and is opposed to Moses, there's a strange visible parallel. Remember Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law and he comes down and it says his face shone, there was a visible sign of his intimacy and his closeness to God? And as these accusers look upon Stephen, the, the text tells us here that his face was like an angel. And it's against this man they seek to accuse, condemn and have him killed. And the high priest asks in the one, how are these things? Are these things true? So we look at Stephen and his Christ-like defence. The majority of the charges are about Moses and the law and the temple. Pretty much, you could say they've gone for the jugular. There are few things that are as important to the Jewish people as the law is in God's holy word and the temple, God's holy place. So they've brought these, saying Stephen is opposed to both of these things. But as Stephen makes a point, he goes back further. He doesn't just address Moses and the temple, he goes back right to the beginnings, uh, as far back as Abraham in verses 2 to 8. There's a recurring phrase we see throughout this text, the glory of God or the God of glory. That is often a description of the, the, the visible sign of God's presence, like when we looked at Exodus and we saw how God's glory rested upon the tabernacle when it was constructed, a sign that his presence was there. And here this text speaks about how the God of glory or God's glory came to Abraham. Now for the Jewish leaders, God's glory was something that resided in the Holy of Holies where only one high priest could enter in there one time a year. And here we see the glory of God comes to Abraham. Not even in the promised land, in Mesopotamia, a pagan land, because right from the beginning God has never been about being confined to geography or to a building. God comes to people. But notice the commonality of the language. Stephen speaks about our father Abraham. All the way along he's speaking about, look, we have the same heritage. I'm not talking about a deviation. I'm showing how the things I'm teaching you fall in line with the same heritage that each one of us have. This is the same Abraham who was given the, the covenant of circumcision. But throughout Israel's history, we see continued reminders and warnings. It wasn't just about having, being circumcised physically. It was about being a change of heart towards God. You see the Old Testament prophets constantly warning the people, be circumcising your heart, not merely just in the flesh. But as he begins with the forefathers and Abraham, his listeners probably think... We're all agreed, what's the problem? He moves to Joseph in verses 9 to 19. Introduces one whom the forefathers rejected, but God exalted. So yes, we have the same forefathers, but look how our forefathers have dealt with Joseph. They sold him off into slavery, into Egypt. But note again, but God was with him. Again, outside of the promised land, God was with his people. And now God who raised him up in Egypt and the one whom the Israelite forefathers had rejected ends up being the one who provides their very need during a time of famine. Again, all in agreement. What are we going to do with Stephen? Now he spends his largest amount of time on Moses. After all, he has been accused of speaking against Moses. Moses introduced us like Joseph. One who God had favour upon But on multiple occasions, the people of Israel rejected him. We see that at age 40, Moses goes out. We looked at this as we went through the book of Exodus last year. He goes out with compassion to his people. Supposing they would see that he is God's appointed deliverer for them. But they don't want him. Matter of fact, they send him out out of fear and he ends 40 years out in the land of Midian. And God is with him. At age 80, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Mount Sinai, again, outside of land. God comes to his people. And Moses told, remove your shoes, for this is holy place. It wasn't a holy place because it was a geographical boundaries in which God said, this area is holy. That place was holy because God's presence was there. I like the way Stephen includes the sneaky reminder in verse 37 of something that Moses spoke This is the Moses, the one that the leaders are holding in such high esteem, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That quote comes from Deuteronomy 18. It goes on to say, you must listen to him, and if you do not listen to him, you will be cut off from the people. Now the council he's bringing these words before have heard these things. Peter's already brought them to them in Acts 3 verse verse 22, saying, those things Jesus is that prophet like Moses who's come that you were supposed to listen to yet you have betrayed him. You have crucified him. It's been the characteristic nature of Israel throughout its history. This Moses you say you hold in such high esteem even while he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. You guys got impatient and you asked Aaron to build you a golden calf and you bowed in and worshipped it. And God gives you over the consequences of your pursuits of, of worshipping idols. Even though that quote which is given there regarding their idolatry comes from Amos much later, it was true for so much of their history. Even though they may not be comfortable with the things that are being said, there's still not, nothing they're disagreeing with. What are you going to do with Stephen when all he's saying is reiterating things that you know in your scriptures? Maybe we'll get him on the temple as he looks at that in verses 44 to 50. When we preach through the book of Exodus, I was gracious and I didn't go through in detail chapter or by chapter for the instructions of the building of the tabernacle because it did go over many chapters. And some of it we look at and think, man, that just seems so unnecessary. Specific materials being used, specific dimensions, how it needed to be done. But one thing we did pick up on, it says Moses did exactly as the Lord had commanded him. That was the character of Moses, despite the fact that we couldn't see a reason for why for such explicit detail, Moses did it exactly as he was told. And the book of Exodus finishes, and the glory of the Lord came to the tabernacle. It was the dwelling place of God amongst his people as they wandered through the wilderness, as they entered into the promised land, God's presence with them. Until the time of David, when David asked to build a permanent dwelling place, the house of God, which eventually Solomon was the one who would do that. It says here in verses 48 to 50, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or the, what is the place of my rest? Does not my hand make all of these things? Now, he's quoting there from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. But it's a silly idea, isn't it? The God who made every single thing that exists, do you think he needs people to build him something to live within? Do you think he can confine the God of all eternity into a physical place? Even as Solomon did build that, build that temple, In his prayer of dedication, he contained these words saying, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So even from the beginning of this this temple, there was this understanding, this is not God's confined space. I mean, God has come to his people throughout all of history, even before a temple or a tabernacle existed. But as we know in Jesus' ministry... He spoke about the temple which would be destroyed. And for the religious leaders, that seemed like a disaster. But it's only a disaster if that was something which is necessary in order for people to encounter God. But let's look at Jesus' words. Jesus answered them, saying, "'Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days.'" The Jews then said, "'It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, "'and you will raise it up in three days.'" But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus was speaking about himself as being a temple that would one day be destroyed and raised up again. But in Matthew 24, he doesn't just speak about the tabernacle, the temple of his own body, he speaks about the physical temple standing in front of them. He says, there's coming a day when you will not see one stone standing on top of another. But while he talks about its destruction... He says nothing about it being raised nothing about it being rebuilt because only 12 chapters previously Matthew 12 verse 6 Jesus says something greater than the temple is here speaking of himself he was was the end goal he was the fulfilment of everything that the temple was designed to be now I'm sure in a room like this age demographic we've probably got some Star Wars fans in here you know, there's a new movie coming out, you watch the trailer. But who, after watching the film, goes back to watch the trailer? Now, the trailer gets you excited about watching the film, but when you've watched the film, do you go back and find some joy and fulfilment in the trailer? And that's kind of what's happening here with the, with the temple. It, it was a good thing, but its purpose was to point forward to Jesus, and when that fulfilment has come, you don't need the need for the the temple is waning out. But the leaders didn't see a temporal nature of the temple even though clearly God has been dealing with people before such a building ever existed. Now I wish we knew whether or not Stephen did say anything like this. I mean, if he's following on in Jesus' teaching, it would make sense there would be something of that way. But even up until this point in time, he probably hasn't said anything that his accusers would disagree with. The most challenging part was just a quote from the Old Testament with a, a book which they would hold in high esteem. So he takes 50 verses when he's under accusation. He's said little to nothing that they could actually bring an accusation or get upset about. Then, just in three verses, Stephen lets rip. He basically turns it on them as he has been the accused and he accuses them you are the ones who have not handled. Moses' law and the temple well. Can't imagine me using this in conversation with someone. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did and as do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Oh, tell us what you think, Stephen. Not too sure if you're getting the point across. This is more than just a, you guys aren't keeping the law like you claiming to be. But he's saying, you know what? All of this, what seems to be unnecessary material that I've been covering, where we've seen how it has been in the nature of, of the Israelite people to reject God's messengers you're exactly the same. Like these expressions, stiff-necked, as words that the Old Testament prophets use, being uncircumcised in heart, are words the Old Testament prophets use to rebuke the people who were who rebelled and turn their back upon God. Saying you're just like the people of the past, there's nothing different. The same who rejected Joseph, Moses, Not only have you rejected all of your prophets who have given you the message that should point you to a right conclusion about who Jesus is, but as the righteous one has come, that Messiah promised by Isaiah, you have betrayed and murdered him. You've rejected all of his messengers. Isaiah, the one whom this quote has come from, according to tradition, was sawn in two to give you a bit of a, a concept of how they had dealt with some of the messengers they had been given. It's kind of like, we've got 50 verses where it's like, we have so much in common. Look at this, we're all in agreement after the one verse, verse 1 to 50, but you just haven't got it. Now, you've got everything that should lead you to the same place as I have, Stephen says, but you just don't get it. You're just not God's people. It reminds me a lot of the conversations sometimes I have with Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they love the Bible, they want to look at the Bible they want to do genuinely want to do what is right in god 's sight that saddens in the way that sin has affected our world. They know that Jesus is the Son of God who 's come into the world and by his death has ransomed us from the problem of our sin but as we saw earlier the idea of Jesus is a very different Jesus and Jesus who said in john five twenty three all must honor the son, just as they honor the father. How do we honor the son? Just like you honor the father, and they don't. And Jesus goes on to say, "Whoever does not honor the son, and we've seen the way to honor the son is to honor him the same as the father, does not honor the father at all." And that's where it's sad in those conversations. We've got so much in common. We love the Bible. We love that Jesus has come as a saviour. But according to Jesus, you don't even honour God at all. Stephen answered in a, his accusers in a way very similar to Jesus. He points them back to say, look what God has done in the past. Look what God has told us in his scriptures. Look what the prophets have told us. This is where it was all leading. And if it wasn't clear they wanted him dead beforehand, then surely they want to now after that. Last three verses. There's comparisons between Stephen and Jesus that not just in the fact that he pointed them back how the scriptures look forward to Jesus, but even in his suffering and his death, there are parallels also. The leaders weren't just mildly annoyed, it says they were angry, they were gnashing of the teeth. That's the kind of language that Jesus used when he speaks about the coming of his judgment. Stephen, on the other hand, seems calm, collected, even though he knows exactly the types of things that have been happening to those who proclaim Jesus beforehand. He sees the glory of God and Jesus at his right hand. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Imagine how offensive they'd think that was. That here they have their temple where they believe that's where God's presence was only inside the holy of holies where only the high priest could enter there one time of year, but even then with incense so that he could not look upon the presence of God. And here is this guy outside of the temple, no particular standing in society, says, I see God and I see Jesus at his right hand in the position of power. That's a fulfillment of that messianic prophet of Daniel 7.13 of the son of man standing at the right hand of God. So while his message is a little bit different in the way he presents it than Peter, it's pretty similar too in some of Peter's speeches where he talks about this Jesus, the natural fulfilment of where the scripture was headed, whom you have betrayed and handed over to be crucified. God has raised up and is exalted to the right hand where he is reigning. And funnily enough, as Peter has rebuked them as being a people who do not listen, They cover their ears, la la la. You can't hear me. They're not their exact words. I don't believe. And without any sense of there being any trial, they seem just so angered. They just lynch him. They just they just pound on him. And because they're good and holy, they think we better not do this in the city. They take him outside of the city and have him stained. And in that context, we see our very first glimpse of Saul, who later becomes Paul. He's the cloak manager. At the stoning. I'll look after you, Clays, while you stoned this man. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul gave approval to his death. This is the man who we're going to see in subsequent chapters brings about some of the greatest expansion and growth of the Christian church was at once greatly in favour of having Christians killed. And as Stephen is being stoned for explaining scriptures, His response is very similar to Christ as well, in two elements. One, in verse 59, when Jesus was on the cross, he says, Into your hand I commend my spirit. Stephen prays, Jesus, receive my spirit. I know I've said this a couple of times for people who rebuke others for saying that they pray to Jesus. We have one example right here. And Jesus even speaks about it himself in John chapter 14. So we see a comparison there where Jesus prays to the Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. Stephen does the same here to Jesus. Jesus, while on the cross, says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, again to Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Can you imagine doing that? Here you are being stoned For explaining the scriptures to people who should have known better, and your prayer and your desire is for them to know the forgiveness and grace of God. Can you love like that? I've never been staying, well, not in that sense, and that's past, and that's certainly not in the notes, so feel free to take that out of it. But that is a radical love of your neighbour. To desire the forgiveness of the people who want you dead and who are stoning you. As Stephen has presented a big picture of the Bible to them. He says, We've got the same heritage, we've got the same scriptures. These things pointed to Jesus. But for their hearers, they thought that all of these statements took away from the law, took away from the significance of the temple. But didn't Jesus himself say, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but they bear witness about me. He spoke of himself as being the greater than the temple, the goal of the existing one. But as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, we need this, we we must have this building, this is the only place people can encounter God. It seems a silly thing, doesn't it? Because in light of the big picture of the Bible, God has always come to his people wherever they are. He's not confined to a space. Even Solomon, when he built the, tab- the temple, said, you can't. And as stupid as this might seem, you would be surprised how commonly that mentality still exists today. The amount of times I hear people say, we just need more people coming to church. Or my only interaction with people who don't know Jesus is, I keep inviting them to church, but they won't come. know what that says? It kind of communicates that if you want to encounter God, you need to come into a building. This isn't holy ground in which we're in here. There's nothing more holy about this building than Bunnings Car Park. And you can get a a sausage if you're at the Bunnings Car Park. Oh, you're going to get lunch here today too. When Paul spoke about the church... In 1 Corinthians, he says the church corporately is the temple of God. It is where God can be encountered. But not only corporately, he also uses it individually. As God's people indwelled by his spirit, we are God's temple. The problem isn't that people aren't coming into church building as though it's like God's dwelling where you need to encounter God. The problem is, is that God's people forget who they are. The God lives in amongst his people. We are his dwelling. We are his ambassadors. The Christ is making his appeal through us. Yet so frequently we seek to pass off the ministry to a church or to a building, the ministry which we have been created in Christ for. The God who made everything that exists from nothing, guess what? He can make himself known through you, through anyone who belongs to him, indwelt by his spirit. One of the mistakes the religious leaders made is they failed to see that the law and the temple point to Jesus. But one of the mistakes we make is that we were created to point people to Jesus. And so often we point people somewhere else to achieve that function. Rather than there being just one location where God can be encountered. Like in this room, we've got sixty plus people who go out, who are not stuck in a building, who go out in different workplaces, different social environments, different neighbourhoods, where the presence of God who desires to use us as his ambassadors to making his appeal through us go throughout our city. And it's not just people in Eastgate Bible Church. There's churches all over this place. There's thousands of people indwelt by his spirit. I'd imagine if the, if the early Christian leaders thought about having temples that could just move and go everywhere. They'd go, wow, what an impact that's going to make. We've got that. God's dwelling in his people. We've seeing it happen throughout the book of Acts, the book which began. 120 people gathered in a room Now we're well above 10,000, they've stopped counting the numbers. How did it happen? As people indwelt by God's Holy Spirit believed who they were as his ambassadors, called to be on mission with him, to call to bring witnesses to Jesus Christ, Christ making his appeal through them. And every persecution is thrown at them and the church continues to grow. Gamaliel might be starting to wonder about his words. If this is God, you will not, you cannot stop it. And even here, as Stephen is the first one who is specifically martyred and killed for proclaiming Jesus. doesn't bring about a decline in the passion and the zeal of the church. It actually becomes the means by which the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem through ordinary people and brings wonderful expanded growth. And we just look forward to looking at that, but also reminding us uh, that the work of of bringing Jesus to a people is not just for a few, but it is for all of us. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the way in which you have seen you work through uh, people of all different types. While we could be inclined to think of uh, the 12 apostles as being mighty superior men, We've seen so much of their life throughout the Gospels and they're really no different than you and I. And God, we just, we just love the fact that you have, as you have said, you have all power and authority. That the message you have entrusted to us is not resting upon our power or our ability, but are upon the one who has dealt with and provided salvation. Uh, Lord, we we pray that we would be encouraged as we see our own people indwelt by your spirit, taking the the very means by which people can encounter God wherever we go. Uh, That people would come to know, trust and love the living God as our people come to understand who we are as God's temple, God's ambassadors, Lord, we thank you that you can, you do work through your people. Charge us, encourage us, and Lord, may we abound with thanks when we see you work through us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Not so large, but.